So this is the story of Freddie Peacock. On July 23rd in 1976, in Rochester, New York, a woman was returning home from work at about 2.10 in the morning. As she opened the door to her apartment, a man approached her from behind, grabbed her keys, and threw her to the ground. When she hit the ground, she struck her head on the concrete. The man told her, if you scream, I'm going to kill you. He took her to the side of a nearby house and raped her. He gave her pack her keys, and then he took off. The woman returned to her apartment building where she told the superintendent, hey, look, I've been raped. The super called the police, and the victim at first, she couldn't really remember the details of the rape, but she told the super, hey, I think it was a neighbor. The super asked her, hey, was it Freddie? She said yes, and then fainted. She was taken to a nearby hospital, an ambulance, where she told the police when she awoke um, that it was Freddie Peacock who raped her. Freddie Peacock was 25 years old at the time of this crime. He was a high-functioning, paranoid schizophrenic, but he took medication and was able to hold down a full-time job as a cook at the Ramada Inn. He lived independently and had friends and relationships, so he was a functioning schizophrenic at the time of this incident. Um, after the police told the victim it was Freddie Peacock, they showed her an array of 10 photos. They did a photo lineup with her, and one of the photos was Freddie Peacock's. She identified Freddie Peacock as the person who raped her in the photo array. So two hours after the rape, the police went to Freddie's house and arrested him. The victim was then brought down to the police station and was basically called to do what they call a show-up procedure, which is basically a one-man lineup. So they had Freddie behind, I would assume, glass and um, through a window, basically. And they asked her if she knew who was standing there. And she basically said, yes, that's the man who raped me. Um, so then they proceeded to put uh, Freddie in a room. They put his Miranda rights uh, in a card, basically, in front of him. And Freddie said, hey, look, I, I just want you to know I have a mental illness and I've been to the hospital uh, for it for several times. The police still interrogated Freddie for about two and a half hours where they claimed he eventually confessed to the crime. But he didn't know any of the details to the crime, the specific where or what happened or anything. But they claim he confessed. So the lead investigator typed up what they call an oral synopsis. And in it, it stated that Freddie said things like, oh, I did it. I raped the girl. But again, Freddie claims he never said any of these things to the investigator. And um, so this is what one of the things they used to basically bring him to trial. So the damning evidence was not only the, um, the uh, supposed confession, but um, also during the trial itself, the victim testified that she knew it was for Freddie because she recognized his beard and his eyes, and she just had a feeling it was him. This kind of reminded me of the Cot Ronald Cotton case where the accuser just knew it was him, even though when the actual rapist was in the courtroom, she didn't even recognize him. So this was one of the primary pieces of evidence against Freddie. Um, she did, however, say that he had a prior incident with her, a couple of them, where he showed up at her apartment uninvited. One, he supposedly, he supposedly asked her to put on a dress or a negligee for him. And another one, she fit, actually physically had to push him out the door with the door to prevent him from entering the apartment. 
Um, two neighbors also basically testified they heard like what they described as hollering or horseplay at the time of the rape around the apartments, but nobody actually physically saw the rape occur except for the victim herself. Now, the lack of evidence or the evidence that was in Freddie's favor, um, basically, there was forensic evidence collected from the victim's body at the hospital, but there was nothing presented at trial. No forensic evidence was presented at trial. The doctor's report basically said that based on the sperm sample he found on the victim's underwear, he was able to determine that she did have sex in the last 48 hours. However, the victim also said she did have consensual sex the day before the crime with her own boyfriend. Also in Freddie's favor was that his own neighbor testified that she can hear everything that goes on in Freddie's apartment because the walls are so thin. So she was able to basically say that she could hear as if she lived in the same room with him. And she testified that she arrived home from work at about 12.05. And she, when she did arrive home, Freddie considerately lowered his radio or his stereo when she arrived home so he wouldn't disturb her. She also testified that about 12.30, she heard Freddie pull down his hideaway bed um, from the wall and she could hear the springs creak as he got into the bed. She did claim she heard screams coming from the vic directions of the victim's apartment, but she never heard like any noise from Freddie's, he, like him getting out of the bed, which apparently this bed is very creaky and she would have heard that. So she claims up until 4 a.m. when she went to bed, she didn't hear anything else from Freddie's apartment. So the trial was in December of 1976, and based on the evidence of, of the victim's testimony, the witnesses, and the confession, a jury found Freddie guilty of first-degree rape, and he was given an indeterminate sentence of up to 20 years. Freddie served five years and nine months in the New York Department of Corrections, and he was released on parole. He was discharged from his parole on March 19, 1992, so he did 10 years of, uh, of parole. Um, Freddie contacted the Innocence Project about 10 years after he completed his parole. So in 2002, he contacted the Innocence Project, um, who were, they were able to basically do DNA testing now that it was available on the underwear, which was still uh, in custody. So they were able to test the underwear the DNA on the underwear. Um, however, they ran into a snag because they needed to test the, um, the, the DNA of the boyfriend of the victim at the time because they needed to rule out his DNA. But he had already been um, basically, um, he was deported by this point. So luckily, the victim's boyfriend's mother was still in the country, so they were able to rule him out based on mitochondrial DNA, which is the DNA from his mother. And then they compared Freddie's DNA to the sample they found on the underwear, and it was not a match. So Freddie was exonerated at this point based on DNA evidence. Um, so in February 2010, Freddie Peacock was finally exonerated um, based on what a judge said that a jury can reasonably find that the confession was either false, a false confession, or it was actually fabricated or could have been fabricated by the police. Um, and also Freddie's state of mind at the time, the fact that he suffered from mental illness, he could have been coerced into a confession. So this was the Innocence Project 250th uh, exoneration. 
Statistically, 25% of cases overturned based on DNA evidence involves false confessions. So that's one in four cases. And 69% of DNA cases overturned involve witness misidentification. So Freddie went on to file a wrongful imprisonment suit against the state. And on August 15, 2016, Freddie was awarded $6.2 million. So in the end, he basically got a million dollars, approximately a million dollars for every year he had to serve. But this just goes to show you how off, uh, how, you know, misidentification and frankly, poor investigation um, basically put a man behind bars for over almost six years. And it took him about over 30 to uh, clear his name.